And it's another week. This is Andrew Wood, Executive Director of Hope Resource Center. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or listening to the podcast at investinghope.com, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. There's a lot to talk about today. As always, there's still things happening around our country when it comes to life and abortion. There's obviously things occurring um, legislatively, but also there's things happening that that point to uh, a spiritual battle. And, and, and I want to get into that here in a second, but, but we have to understand, when, when I say this isn't just a political issue, it's, I don't just say that because it sounds cool for a Christian to say that. I say that because that is how it, it, it certainly is in a biblical worldview, but also that's how it's playing out in the public sector. So, so when I say this is not a political issue, this is a gospel issue, this is a spiritual issue, this is a creator issue, and, and secular folks say, no, you can't bring the Bible into this, keep your Bible out of uh, my uterus and keep your Bible out of my exam room, and then the secular folks make a move in a direction that is in a spiritual realm, then we have to wrestle with that. Now, now, what do I mean by that? Well, New York City, there, there was a, a statue just erected in New York City on the city courthouse. And, and this is over at LifeNews.com. And listen to this. A new golden idol to abortion stands on top of a New York City courthouse this month. A reminder of the religiosity with which abortion activists defend the mass slaughter of babies in the womb. The, quote, now statue also hints at the satanic, a naked golden woman with braids fashioned into horns coming out of her head as she emerges from a pink lotus. Images used by Satanists and the satanic temple often depict Satan with goat-like horns. Andrew Beck of the advertising agency Beck and Stone drew attention to the statue Wednesday. He said this, the statue named Now is a female figure emerging from a pink lotus. It has braids shaped as horns with a judicial lace apron. It is meant to pay homage to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her fight for abortion. According to the New York Times, the artist created the eight-foot statue as a homage to the late U.S. Supreme Court justice and idol of the pro-abortion movement. It recently was installed on top of the courthouse. First Department of the Supreme Court of the State of New York in the city. She is a fierce, this is what they say describing it, she is a fierce woman and a form of resistance in a space that has historically been dominated by patriarchal representation. With Ginsburg's death and the reversal of Roe, there was a setback to women's constitutional progress. That's what the artist said. The 53-year-old artist told the newspaper that she titled her piece now because women's ability to have abortions is at risk now. The statue is not a permanent piece on the courthouse, according to the report. Its next stop is Houston, Texas, in June. In New York, the law allows unborn babies to be aborted for basically any reason up to birth. And in New York City, abortions often outnumber births in the African-American community. Despite these dismal facts, city and state Democratic leaders are pushing to expand abortions even more. So, so look, they're, they're going to take this statue and they're going to move it around the country but, but I want to focus on something for a second. When, when we say this is a spiritual issue, 
And we are told by secular folks this has nothing to do with faith or religion. It has something to do with women's rights. And then they erect a statue that has horns growing out of its head in paying homage to Ruth Bader Ginsburg and abortion. You tell me if this is a faith and spiritual issue. But see, New York City's done this before. If you'll remember years ago, they lit up the twin ta- they lit up a World Trade Center, the Ground Zero. They lit it up in pink to honor Planned Parenthood and abortion rights. Now, some people on the surface will go, "Well, that's just them, you know, giving honor to an organization." But but here's here's the thing: when you go to Ground Zero and you go through the museum. Listed on the plaques as they list who lost their life on 9-11. There's a number of unborn children listed. Why? Because there were pregnant women in that building, in those buildings when they, when they collapsed. Pregnant women died, which meant their unborn children died. And they took the time at Ground Zero to recognize the unborn losing their life. So to light that up in pink and act as if abortion doesn't end the life of the unborn is unbelievable to me. And now they're erecting statues, a golden statue. Imagine that, a golden idol. They might as well have fashioned together a golden calf. But a golden statue to honor abortion. And we're going to call it now because women's rights are at a danger right now. And they're going to take it from New York City and they're going to take it to Houston, Texas, and I'm sure they're going to take it to other major cities around the country. But but again, tell me this isn't a spiritual gospel issue. You know, it's the same thing we talked about last week. When, When we have the discussion and the debate on life and abortion... And things get heated. And people get upset. Erecting a golden statue isn't going to, I wouldn't think, bring a lot of folks to your side. How many people are lining up and going, yeah, that's a great move. A golden statue with horns. Like, we need to get behind that. And in the same way, extremists and activists for the abortion lobby coming out and yelling and screaming at pro-lifers and twerking on them and putting fake blood on their crotches, that's not going to convince people either. Yet those folks aren't labeled an extremist. The person that erected this statue isn't labeled an extremist. As a matter of fact, one of the largest cities in the country said, put it on our courthouse. But I'm an extremist because I'm pro-life and err on the side of life. You see the difference there? So, so I need you to hear, when I say this isn't a political issue, if, if we only see this as a political issue, we miss the boat and we lose every single time. This is a gospel issue. This is a creator issue. 
if, if you get the creator creating life, if you get the first fundamental belief, this truth system in scripture that God creates life, that he's the author of life, if you get that wrong, you get everything wrong. And so when we think about golden statues being erected, when we think about activists screaming at anyone that would dare say abortion ends the life of a human, when we think about all these things that are working in conjunction with each other, folks, if, if, if all we think about is how, how a vote may go or how a Supreme Court decision may go, and, and we don't understand this is so much more than politics, if we don't understand this is spiritual warfare, if we don't understand that this is a gospel issue first and foremost, a God issue first and foremost, then we're missing it. And look, people are going to go, oh, you're thinking they're erecting idols. What would you call it? What would you call it? A golden statue. Not to someone that, that served well. It's not a, a bust of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's not a, a, her face. It's not a statue of her sitting on the bench. No, it's a golden statue with horns coming out of her head. So this isn't about honoring a public servant. This isn't about honoring a, a political figure from days gone by. No, this is, this is about an idolatry. This is about idolizing abortion. I mean, think about that. Think about what's being celebrated here. We love abortion so much that we're going to create a golden statue and we're going to put it on the courthouse in the city of New York because we love abortion so much. A city where African-American women are aborting more babies than they are delivering. Like, do you understand that stat? More babies are being aborted than being born. And the city that never sleeps says, you know what we need is a golden statue Honoring abortion. Celebrating abortion. When they say things like shout your abortion, they mean it. They don't care about the, the women and men that are, that are being harmed and carrying around the, the shame and guilt and weight of the decision that they made years ago or even a few months ago. And so when, when I say this isn't just a political issue, I need you to understand it's so much more than that. And if we think that it's just a political issue, then, then we have no answers. No answers. Why? Because there is no answer to abortion in a secular realm. No answers. There is no answer to abortion in a survival of the fittest mindset. There is no answer 
apart from a biblical worldview that says the God of the universe creates life. And the fact that he creates life requires something of me as a Bible-believing, God-fearing Christian. If he creates life, then that means everyone that I come in contact with bears the image of God. That means they have intrinsic value. And that means a person that would erect a golden statue, an idol to abortion, needs Jesus. But instead, we, you know, argue and fuss and, and go back and forth on this legislation and that legislation. And, you know, when can I, when can I have an abortion? And, and what's the timeline? And what, is it when the heartbeat's present or... This and that. No, no, this is a spiritual issue. Now, there's a lot of folks that are going to say, well, look, you've you got to get, you know, get the spiritual stuff out of here. This is about logic and science and, you know, the list goes on and on. But here's the reality. Logic and science, left to itself, is going to get you to a place where you will erect a golden statue. But a deep understanding of life and who created life will get you to a place of redemption, will get you to a place of, of understanding that life has value, will get you to a place of protecting the most vulnerable. And, and so it isn't that, that I'm some kind of you know weirdo that's saying this is a you know, they're erecting golden statues and idols. No, they're, they're telling us. They're telling us. They're illustrating it. They're showing us. And then we just sit back and, you know, we're told, well, you're just some kind of crazy right-wing nut job that, uh, that hates women. While they're literally erecting a statue in the hopes that more abortions will happen. We'll be back. There was Jesus In the shadows of the alley There was Jesus So as we continue the conversation, look, all we try to do here is, is bring to your attention things that are happening around the country when it comes to life and abortion. And these are things that we need to be aware of, uh, they're not things that need to you know, keep you up at night or, or ruin your day. What I'm trying to do is get you to understand that, that this is a gospel issue. So are we praying about this? Are we seeking out God in how we would see changes happen when it comes to legislation, when it comes to our communities, when it comes to fostering environments that would uh, celebrate family, when it comes to seeing lives saved, when it comes to babies being taken care of, families being flourish or, or flourishing, and and all those things. Because, folks, this is a spiritual issue. It's a spiritual issue, and, and, and I think that is important. And, and so when I say it's not just a political issue, I need you to understand that that's part of it. But it's so much more than that. So as we have conversations about legislation and policy, which I have those conversations we also understand that apart from a spiritual awakening in our society, 
we may move the ball down the field a little bit, but it's never going to reach its culmination until revival happens. So in light of that, there's a, a piece over at Public Discourse about strategy moving forward. And it says this, a national demonstration like the March uh, for Life reminds politicians that pro-life voters don't intend to take the Dobbs victory as an opportunity to pack up and go home. Pro-lifers should push for change at the state level. But if pro-life Americans wish to remain an influential interest group at the national level, they would be wise not to send the message that federal politicians can brush abortion policy aside indefinitely as a matter for state lawmakers to sort out. Last week, for the first time in its history, the March for Life took place in a post-Roe country. Celebration was in the air, to be sure, and rightly so, but there was also a strong undercurrent of uncertainty as the movement looks to to a future full of new challenges and thorny strategic questions. While in years past, marchers would chant, Hey, hey, ho, ho, Roe v. Wade has got to go. This year's march features slogans like, we are the post-Roe generation and we will abolish abortion. The unspoken question hovered in the air. How exactly are we supposed to do that? This question has consumed the pro-life movement since the Supreme Court handed down its Dobbs decision. Though the movement had decades to prepare for this moment, it's little surprise that a master plan has yet to appear. In previous decades, pro-lifers rarely saw eye to eye on strategy or rhetoric, but They had a temporary reprieve from charting the way to an abortion-free future because they coalesced around the most necessary project, bringing about the end of Roe, so that the people and their elected representatives can protect unborn children from abortion. Now that Roe is finally gone, that clarity of purpose has dried up with the last of the celebratory champagne. There's been talk for decades about making abortion illegal and unthinkable, but far less explored is the notion that we might coordinate a strategy for doing so. Plenty of people have lots of ideas for what comes next, and a select few have grand plans, but there is no secret roadmap coordinating the next phase of the fight against abortion. Instead, it is becoming clear that this will be a battle fought in stages, requiring both cultural and political tactics, such as improved messaging, state and community-level support for women, electoral and ballot campaigns, and federal and state policymaking. In this context, some in the movement have suggested that a national march isn't as important as it once was, that pro-lifers should focus their firepower at the local level, where intense policy fights are playing out. But the National March for Life is as important as ever, especially in the absence of clear federal policy objectives and in the midst of disagreement among Republican leaders to their responsibility on the issue. Despite these debates, there's opportunity to build consensus around a national strategy. Some on the right argue otherwise, but it seems clear that both Dobbs and the 14th Amendment leave room for Congress to protect unborn children from abortion at the national level, if only to set a ceiling above which no state abortion law can go. The fact that states can now act in defense of human life doesn't absolve the federal government of its duty to do the same. In the wake of Dobbs, a significant number of Pro-life politicians have declared that they consider abortion a state's-only issue, despite having voted in the past for federal regulations on abortion. Meanwhile, others on the right argue that being vocally pro-life has cost the GOP too much politically. A national demonstration like the march reminds these politicians that pro-life voters don't intend to take the Dobbs victory as an opportunity to pack up and go home. We should push for change at the state level. 
And the March for Life has begun helping them do so, planning annual marches in capital cities across the country. But if pro-life Americans wish to remain an influential interest group at the national level, they would be wise not to send the message that federal politicians can brush abortion policy aside. Likewise, the continued insistence on national policymaking will set the tone for future elections and for candidates who would claim to be pro-life and expect the movement's support. In the wake of last November's midterms, commentators on both left and right asserted that American support for illegal abortion for legal abortion was a decisive factor in Republican underperformance. But, but that's missing the, po- the point. In short, the claim that opposition to abortion cost Republicans in the midterms, a claim that Donald Trump even repeated earlier this month, demonstrates an un- unsophisticated grasp of the intricacies of the 2022 midterms and the broader abortion debate. The problem isn't the GOP's position. It's the GOP's failure to message effectively on the issue. It is the Democratic Party, not the GOP, that holds the most extreme, most unpopular position on abortion. And it goes on and on and on. And so that is true. What Roe being overturned did was take it back to the 50 states. So now we have a 50-state front. But we still need a national strategy. We still need congressmen and senators that are willing to stand boldly for life. We don't need folks that are going, well, now it's a state issue. I don't have to talk about it. Now, there's a reason why they would say that. They, they don't want to talk about it because they're not truly pro-life, some of them. And, and see, it's, it's easy to try to blame pro-lifers for the midterms if you're not paying attention. You didn't, you didn't underperform in the midterms because pro-lifers were out talking about life too much. That's nonsense. It's nonsense coming from pre- former President Trump. It's nonsense coming from any congressman or any senator. It is nonsense coming from any national organization. It wasn't the pro-lifers that made you underperform in the midterms in 2022. You're just looking for a scapegoat. You're just looking for someone to point blame at. And so why not throw under the bus the biggest voting block that you have? It's political malpractice. It makes no sense. It makes no sense to rational folks. But it does make sense if you're motivated by the next election and not by conviction. It does make sense if you're afraid to talk about the hard things. And see, those pro-lifers are just so, there's no wiggle room with them. There's no wiggle room. Why won't they compromise? So so now we're being told by the abortion lobby that you need to compromise as a pro-lifer. And now we're being told by some, quote-unquote, pro-life politicians that we need to compromise on the issue. Here's my answer. No. No. Not compromising. I'll compromise when it comes to, are we going to go out to eat at this restaurant or that restaurant? I'll compromise on that. I'll compromise on, should I cut my grass this short or a little bit longer? Should I cut it once a week or twice a week? I'll, I'll compromise on that. But here's what I'm not going to compromise on. Ending the life of humans inside the womb. I'm not compromising on it. There is no gray area. And so if you want to throw the pro-life voting block under the bus 
because you refuse to admit your participation in the underperformance of the midterms, then that's on you. But I would highly advise against it. Life deserves protection. And if you're going to throw your name in the hat to be voted and elected, you represent the unborn and the born. Protect them. We'll be back. So as we continue the conversation, I now want to shift focus a bit. And, and I want to do this because there's a, there's a piece over at the New Yorker. And you're like, well, you're reading the New Yorker? Yeah, some. Okay. Forgive me. But I, I try to bring you the news. I try to bring you what's happening around our country. And sometimes that means I need to look at what's being said in the New Yorker. Because, again, we have a secular culture that is trying to define terms. We have a secular culture that, in many cases, refuses to define terms. We have a secular culture that lives in gray area. There is no black and white. There's only gray, the mushy middle that we can't really understand. And so what they try to do is they look at problems facing our society, and they try to find an answer in secular remedies. Well, guess what? There is no answer with secular remedies. Again, folks, this is spiritual. It's a spiritual battle. It's doing the hard things. It's doing the right thing, no matter what. And so there's a piece over at the New Yorker, and this is what it's titled. It's called, What's the Matter with Men? They're floundering at school and in the workplace. Some conservatives blame a crisis of masculinity, but the problem and their solutions are far more complex. It says this, First, there was Adam, whose creation takes center stage on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Then fashioned out of Adam's spare rib, there was Eve, relegated to a smaller panel. In Michelangelo's rendition, as in the Bibles, the first man sleeps through the miraculous creation of his soulmate, the first woman, and the eventual mother of humanity. Many of our foundational myths are, in this way, stories about men related by men to other men. The notion of female equality is historically an innovation. Quote, woman has always been man's dependent, if not his slave. The two sexes have never shared the world in equality. That's what Simone Bavour wrote in The Second Sex, published in 1949. And she said, and even today, woman is heavily handicapped through her situation. Though her situation is beginning to change, nearly three quarters of a century later, that change has continued. By a variety of metrics, men are failing, falling behind parity. Is the second sex becoming the better half? Many social scientists agree that contemporary American men are mired in mal uh, malaise even as they disagree about the causes. In academic performance, boys are well behind girls in elementary school, high school, and college where the sex ratio is approaching two female undergraduates for every one male. It was even split at the start of the 1980s. Rage among self-designated uh, incels and other elements of the online manosphere appears to be steering some impressionable teens toward misogyny. Men are increasingly dropping out of work during their prime working years, overdosing, drinking themselves to death, and generally dying earlier, including by suicide. And men are powering the new brand of reactionary Republican politics premised 
on a return to better times when America was great and when men could really be men. The question is what to make of the uh, what to make of all of this for the. For the right, the plight of American men is existential. It is an affront to biological and perhaps biblical determinism, a threat to an entire social order. Yet, for all the strides that women have made since gaining the right to vote, the highest echelons of power remain lopsidedly male. The detoxification of masculinity, progressives say, is a messy and necessary process. Sore losers of undeserved privilege don't merit much sympathy. Did you hear that? The detoxification of masculinity, progressives say, is a messy and necessary process. Sore losers of undeserved privilege don't merit much sympathy. I'm not going to continue to read the entire article. But but if you want an answer to why men are less likely to go to college more likely to to do drugs, overdose on drugs, more likely to commit suicide, being unproductive. You see, I'm not for any toxic person. So if you believe that you can rule with an iron fist over your neighbor, whether that be your spouse or whoever, your employee, I'm not for that. That's not masculinity. But you see, what our culture has done today is declared all masculinity is toxic. So if I want to take my son out and split wood, I call that a masculine thing. We're providing for our family heat in the cold months. And I'm looking at my little boy who who soon will be 12, and I'm saying we are being a part of the family structure by providing for our family. You see, secular society would say, you need to have your daughters out there with you as well, which I don't tell them not to come out there with me. But they would say, I'm raising my son up in a patriarchal system where he feels as if he's, he needs to provide for his sisters and for his mom and for his you know, future spouse. But you see, What's happened over the decades is, is the attempt to take away masculinity. You see, when, when you come in in a secular society and you say there are no roles here, there's no gender roles. A husband doesn't have a specific role. A wife doesn't have a specific role. We can't define what a man is. We can't define what a woman is. When you do that... You're not making people equal. You're watering down society. So when when you say men need to step up and take their responsibility as a father, and then also say, men, you have no say in whether this woman has an abortion or not. You have no say. It's not your child. You need to sit down and shut up and sit on the sideline. Well, guess what, folks? When you say that enough, There are men in our society that listen. You want to know what toxic masculinity is? Toxic masculinity is a man that would sleep with a woman and say, don't worry about it. 
You can go get an abortion. I'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. This gives us the freedom to have as much relations as we want. Don't worry about it. You can, you, you can go be the woman you need to be. Don't worry about this pregnancy. We can get rid of that. You see, that's toxic masculinity. That's no man. That's a boy. You know what a man is? A man is saying, hey, hey, I know we didn't have this pregnancy in the plan, but regardless of what our plan was, I'm going to be the dad to that child. And I, I want to be a part of that child's life. I'm going to take responsibility. I may take a second job so I can help provide formula and diapers and wipes. And, and I'm, going to, I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that, that y'all are okay. Whether we stay together and get married or not, I'm going to make sure that, that y'all are okay. You see, that's, that's what masculinity is. Masculinity is saying, hey, I, I love you and I want to spend the rest of my life with, with you and only you. And I want to raise our kids together. I want to provide for you a home. I want to provide for you an environment that allows you to flourish and be who you want to be as a mom and as a career woman. I want to, I want to allow for that to happen. I want to participate in that. How can I help? You see, that's what masculinity is. But, but see, society, the New Yorker would look at my home the Wood family home and go, oh, you got four kids and you homeschool and, 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 you know, you're just, your wife is just barefoot and pregnant all the time. That's not masculinity. What they wouldn't realize is my wife is an entrepreneur and has her own business and, and does amazing things uh, at a vet three days a week as she's helping save the lives of animals and doing all of these things and, and is able to do that as a mom, as a entrepreneur, as a wife, when, when they make comments like this, it, it really, they, they put all their cards on the table and it allows us to see what is happening. And I want you to understand that because it, it makes a difference when, when we're having this discussion. Listen to this again. Men are increasingly dropping out of work during their prime working years, overdosing, drinking themselves to death, and generally dying earlier, including by suicide. A lot of bad things. Then they follow that up with, the detoxification of masculinity, progressives say, is a messy and necessary process. You see, they are so dead set on stripping men of their roles, that they would say, yeah, the suicides and the drinking, the overdosing, that's all just part of the process. Instead of saying, hey, how about we put a mentor program in that, that helps raise these men to be the men they've been called to be, to embrace masculinity that isn't toxic, to embrace a masculinity that says, I'm going to protect my neighbor. I'm going to love my woman, my wife, my girlfriend. I'm going to love the women in my life. I'm going to love my siblings. I'm going to, I'm going to do all of these things. I'm going to allow for and create environments for my spouse to flourish. You see, that's what masculinity is. We have a perverted view of masculinity. And what they are calling toxic masculinity, in many cases, is not toxic. 
There are toxic masculine people. Don't get me wrong. But the, their definition is that they're running with is not the correct definition. But this is what happens when you take away roles and you quit defining things. You get a mess. Why? Because their answer, they believe, is in a secular culture, a secular world, not a spiritual realm. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we continue and finish up today, look, all these things are connected. Whether it be the, the looking at the, what our secular culture is doing when it, when it comes to abortion and, and erecting golden idols to honor abortion. Or we look at our politicians that are trying to discern, is this still a federal battle or is it only a state battle and any federal leaders need to just not talk about abortion? Or we look at how our culture is now viewing masculinity. It, it all goes back. To when we understand that life is created by the God of the universe, it changes everything. When you refuse to define what a woman is and what a man is, and when you refuse to admit that there are gender roles, now, now those gender roles don't mean that only men can be CEOs. That's not what it means at all. But you see, society has an issue because even currently, on the Supreme Court, we have Amy Coney Barrett. She's got seven kids. And she sits on the Supreme Court. And a secular culture don't like her because she's Catholic. And, and she sees the world differently than them. Even though she represents just how amazing women are. That they can't have their baby and their dreams. They can have their children and sit on the Supreme Court. So, so I am unapologetically raising my boy to be a masculine man. Now, what does that mean? I want him to be strong. I want him to love. I want him to be sensitive. I want him to protect. I want him to provide. That doesn't mean that his wife will not work. It just means he's going to be engaged, loving, tough. They can, they can wrestle with his son one day, but also cuddle up with his daughter. You see, I married a very, very independent woman who has done some amazing things in her career. But at no point did she feel hindered because she married a masculine man. That, that, it's actually the opposite. So, so is there toxic masculinity? Absolutely. It's just they, they've defined it wrong. In many cases. These men that are driving women to abortion clinics, even though they're listening to the secular culture, those are toxic men. But the dads that are in dad class at Hope once a month, asking the hard questions, nervous and scared, 
Those are the men I want to see raise up in our society. You can't beat down men for decades and tell them they have no say in the matter of their child and then get mad when they start listening. There are toxic people in our society. We live in a broken society. Now, again, that's a spiritual thing that that a secular culture can't really wrap its head around. But there are toxic people. I'm not saying there isn't. There are certainly toxic people. And there's toxic people that are taking advantage of of a group of folks that are lost and looking for acceptance, looking for love, looking for community. The answer to toxic people is not letting it work its way out with overdosing, heavy drinking, high school dropout. Like that's not the answer to to correcting toxic people. No, the answer, again, this is a spiritual issue. The answer is understanding who created life. The answer is understanding that we're a lost people in need of a savior. And that God created and ordained in our lives roles that we're going to play. And so if we sit around and wait for the secular culture to to throw us the answers or the New Yorker to give us the answers, well, you're just going to sit and wait for a while. And you're going to continue to see society go in the wrong direction. Or... We as the church can, can step up and say, no, here's, here's what a man is. Here's what a woman is. Here's who created life. And here's what we're going to do to foster environments that would celebrate those things. We're going to love unapologetically. We're going to provide and we're going to care for and we're going we're gonna to be there for our neighbors. Like that's how a difference is made. We'll talk to you all next week.